0: tuning in online. Town Hall's current COVID-19 building policies are dedicated to the safety of our speakers, performers, staff, and audience. And so we thank all of you.
1: How's everybody doing? And we have home improvements going on. So you'll hear that in the background from time to time. The plumbers, the carpenters. You might even hear me eating chips and doing housework at the same time or cooking while I'm doing the podcast. I'm dedicated to our information and education while we have a life at the same time. Coming up next will be Gene Slater, author. Okay. Jean Slater with Jay Reich. Long, How Realtors to Conspired to Segregate America changed the QA platform for our He was also to on Roland Martin's, Martin's show.ps forward slash Slater or scan the
0: QR code right now on the screen with your smartphone. We'll drop this link. Chat and, folks
1: again. and it's Thank now 5:52 p.m. 10 10 PM 10. on the west coast and friday TV. evening to October 29th just 2 days away from, your own from halloween boo boo
0: in the broad right
1: not the much to program. celebrate
0: Town Hall is new
1: there may there be some people It'll to make it happen on Sunday night with authors, a few goblins, and, and, and ghosts. An okay.
0: On our with Dr. Ruba, Maria, and Patel, the Town
1: Hall Seattle
0: a of the of YouTube channel. And a We're waiting for a irrepressible Dan Savage himself that last event or
1: she for gene
2: slater um, the commission is authorized by state to borrow money at tax rates and lend that money to developers to build affordable housing and to first time eligible homeowners and in the course of the 35 years i represented them and since
1: they finance tens Let's of thousands see if we can get it to start from the beginning, because I mean, we're Gene going to learn something from ago, Gene Slater. He was acting as a financial advisor
2: to the commission and helped develop those programs. And as indicated, Gene has played that role and continues to play that role.
0: A podcast in the moment, uh, which features exclusive interviews of on affordable housing. His projects have received numerous national awards, And In the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2009, he helped design the program by which the United States Treasury financed homes for 110,000 first-time buyers. Jay Rich is a retired partner of Pacifica Law Group, who spent two years as Deputy Chief of Staff at the U.S. Department of Commerce under Secretary Gary Locke. Prior to his time in D.C., his three decades of practice in Seattle focused on affordable housing education nonprofit and government finance as well as public-private partnerships Slater's book freedom to discriminate how Realtors conspired to segregate housing and divide America is the subject of their discussion tonight please join me in welcoming Jay rich and Jean Slater
2: Thank you for that gracious invitation. Uh, As indicated, my name is Jay Rich, and I'm a retired attorney who had the privilege to represent the Washington State Housing Finance Commission for over 35 years. Um, The commission is authorized by state to borrow money at tax-exempt rates and lend that money to developers to build affordable housing and to first-time eligible homeowners. And in the course of the 35 years I represented them and since They finance tens of thousands of units of affordable housing throughout Washington. I met Gene Slater about 35 years ago when he was acting as the financial advisor to the commission and helped develop those programs. And as indicated, Gene has played that role uh, and continues to play that role to numerous local and state housing agencies as well as the federal government. But tonight we're going to talk about his book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America. It's a hard-hitting and well-researched book that traces the professionalization and racial discrimination um, and political activism of the realtor realtor community, starting in California, but went nationally. Um, The realtors and we're going to talk about exactly what they did, but over the course of many years, they were instrumental in changing the environment of housing throughout the nation uh, in support of racial segregation. Um, They developed a populist, libertarian dogma that true Americans, uh, presumably white and Christian, have fundamental rights in property, not necessarily in the Constitution, but as a result of common law or their own Uh, theories and that guarantee to them the unfettered freedom to discriminate in the sale of property and to live among those who they chose. Uh, This notion of individual freedom uh, obviously conflicts with the freedom of African Americans uh, as advocated through the civil rights movement to enjoy the benefits of property ownership. And in a larger sense and perhaps a more insidious sense, this ideology when embraced by conservatives in the Republican Party and in parts of the media means that a host of so-called, quote, guaranteed individual rights beyond just owning residential property, for example, to own guns, to discriminate based on religion, to enforce the rights of fetuses, to go to term, to resist vaccination, These rights inevitably undercut the rights of others. In this world, the enjoyment of freedom and fundamental rights is a zero-sum game. Conservatives are the genuine victims, they would allege, of an an aggressive central government seeking to take away these rights of true Americans for the unfair benefit of undeserving individuals. The rhetoric is astutely non-racial So that as a theoretical matter, every person who, for example, had been allowed to buy property can discriminate at will. But in the real world, this perspective clearly and intentionally ensures the continued advantages of those with historic wealth and power. So there's a lot of nuanced analysis to unpack in this book. So let's start at the beginning. Gene, welcome to Seattle. Thank you very much. Gene, let's start by understanding what motivated you to write this book in the first place.
3: Yeah, in some ways, um, it's how little I knew um, that I had pieces of a picture without really understanding the whole thing, and uh, this comes in two two dimensions, and the book really, and what we're going to talk about tonight, links these two dimensions, which is the history of residential segregation and the creation of this conservative idea of freedom, both of which were invented by the realtors. Realtors, local real estate boards, form national associations. They organized the real estate industry. Um, so, in terms of my own background, so I, you know, I started uh, in housing, 1970, looking at every abandoned building in the South Bronx, and worked on when well, we started this firm in a farmhouse on the Mississippi River. 20 miles from New Machine in Wisconsin, designed a home improvement program for Pittsburgh that fixed up 18,000 of the 72,000 single-family homes. And I worked on those kinds of programs in many places, including Seattle in the early 80s, um, and worked with realtors in south-central Los Angeles, worked on mixed-income housing, worked on sort of all kinds of housing. But one of the things I learned as I studied the story was that everybody in this affordable housing industry is sort of dealing with the consequences and the aftermath of segregation and disinvestment but very few have any sense of including African American heads of state housing finance agencies have any sense as I've learned and talked about this of how this actually happened so that was one part of it and the second was I was in a graduate human rights seminar at Stanford where um, one of the questions I started asking was why is it that every extension of civil rights is viewed by conservatives as a violation of American freedom, of individual freedom? How did that start? Where did that come from? I knew the realtors had used some of this rhetoric in the 60s, but I didn't understand what about it made it so powerful, where it came from, or where it came from in the history of defending segregation. So it was really in many ways, what i 'm describing is the story I learned and the surprises I learned by putting these two pieces together, because I think when you see them together, you illuminate these two fundamental features of modern America that seem so basic they 're like the Great Plains, right that we have black and white neighborhoods and, and they're all half Americans view freedom as meeting you know what we hear in the news tonight. Um, and so when you start seeing how they're connected, you start seeing these fundamental divides in the country driven by the same idea. And that's what interested me about this. So let's start back at the beginning.
2: Take me back to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, what did
3: housing patterns look like in California and elsewhere in the country? You know, one of the myths that realtors used in promoting segregation was that segregation was natural and normal and historic. It had always been this way. That's not the case. When you go back to the beginning of the 1900s, everywhere in the country, cities were not segregated. People lived where they could afford. If you were poor, you lived in poor areas, but those were dispersed and mixed as well, racially mixed as well. And if you go to places, um, border cities like uh, Washington, St. Louis, Louisville, um, Baltimore, hundreds of blocks were racially mixed in those cities. in 1904 in Los Angeles, and I tell the story through Los Angeles because Los Angeles and California, because they became the largest real estate board in the country, wound up with half the realtors, shaped so much of the national politics, and was the place where this ideology was really brought to fruition and influenced Ronald Reagan. But anyway, in Los Angeles in 1904, a black real estate agent um, proudly you know, talked about how Proud blacks were that they lived in many of the best neighborhoods of the city they had chosen not to segregate themselves. They had many of the best services and infrastructure. And yet, by 1917, another African American in that city, 13 years later, so not a long time later, said, we've been encircled by walls, the white sur- invisible walls. The whites surrounded us and made it impossible to go beyond these walls. Something dramatic had changed and this changed before most of the stories you hear about segregation is you know African Americans coming in the great migration to Chicago in 19, you know during World War 1 or to Detroit and resistance and it, it began earlier than that and it began at the beginning of the 1900s and transformed first Los Angeles more than anywhere else and then the country and that's sort of the story that I'll you know sort of walk through so What's interesting is segregation didn't begin as a a vast plan or a scheme or this is how we're going to organize ourselves or people have to live in particular, are going to be confined to particular neighborhoods. It began rather as a solution to a a classic real estate problem, which was a problem of land development in the early 1900s. There was no zoning. And so when people built subdivisions, and, and you didn't Buy a, you didn't buy homes in a whole subdivision. There was a subdivider who divided it all up, and often put out just paper streets. Some of which got built in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, in this era, there were ultimately there would be lots for seven million lots and a million for the population of a million by 20 years from later. So, making a subdivision was like the easiest thing in the world in some ways. Nobody knew what they were getting. So a couple of the members of the early real estate boards, and real estate boards were formed, were founded, let me give that as a little background here, were founded around this era, Los Angeles in 1903, for example, um, were founded by the most established brokers in each city in a situation which later referred to as the Wild West of real estate. There was no licensing. Um, people you know, tried to sell real estate on street corners. They'd go up and solicit you. Um, they try and cut a deal and i 'll offer you half the price or i 'll sell on a net basis, which means the lower the price you agree to sell at, the fatter my commission and so real real estate people were known as shysters that was and here were these most established brokers, very often socially elite people with yachts and uh, racing horses in Los Angeles decided to try and change that, they would organize themselves in real estate boards that consisted of just a few dozen of the 2,000 people working in real estate in Los Angeles, they would get state licensing, they would put out of business people who violated these rules, and they would dominate the business by creating the multiple listing service, which they thought of real estate boards like a stock exchange where everybody would have, you know, everybody had a copy of the same um, certificates as to the property and they would share them. This dominated the industry and let them double commissions. Um, from like 3% to 5% or 6%. so they be- And they controlled 80% of sales. So that's who real estate boards were. That's- and they later trademarked themselves as realtors. So a couple of the most dynamic of these people, one guy in uh, Berkeley, a Duncan McDuffie, and one in Kansas City, J.C. Nichols, both at around the same time, around 1905, just as these boards were being formed, decided... That their approach to subdivisions would be the exact opposite. In the same way that real estate boards were trying to establish trust, if you dealt with them, they would establish trust in their subdivisions. And what they would do is they would create high. They were going to create the highest end subdivisions in the country using the Olmsted brothers, who designed Central Park, for landscaping, creating you know curved streets, um, and they used. But their concern was they're going to spend a lot of money on infrastructure and buying all this land. Well, that means they have to know what's going to happen when they sell the last lots to make their money five years from now or seven years from now. This is a fundamental problem. You have no zoning. If somebody buys a lot, they can turn it into an apartment house. They can turn it into a brothel. They can turn it into a bar um, or a factory because that's, that's the nature. So they decided they would use something that had been pioneered a few years before, Called called restrictive covenants, covenants that basically limited what a owner could do with a property. And the first of these covenants, the ones that had been done before McDuffie and Nichols, they said you can't build a house. You have to build a house at least of this at least this size. You have to keep the street trees. They added to this one other covenant, which was. Nobody can ever live on this property or for the next 30 years can live on this property other than a servant who's not Caucasian. And this cost these developers nothing. And it was marketed, it was a marketing tool. It was a way of saying, here's social class. For example, in the Bay Area, they're building the highest end, the most expensive house lots in the Bay Area. Relatively few of the small number of African Americans or Japanese Americans at the time could possibly have afforded this. It wasn't about race per se. Necessarily, but it was about social cachet. This idea took off. At first, they found it hard to convince people. Why should you put a covenant, I mean, why should I put a restriction on my own lot that I'm buying? People said, this seems un-American. You know, it's sort of, this is, you know, this is against my freedom as an owner. And they said, no, 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 it's not the restrictions on you which matter. It's the restrictions on your neighbors which count. It's really fear of what, is going to happen next door this theme will come up throughout this story so they did this within a year this idea took off and took off more in los angeles than anywhere else where high-end subdivisions beverly hills advertised themselves with permanent deed restrictions um you know for caucasians only caucasians meant sort of whatever the developer meant it to It certainly included Certainly excluded African Americans, Japanese, Chinese, Mexican Americans. It Generally excluded Jews. It excluded Catholics. It excluded Italians. So, sort of cha- who, who was allowed to be white, to be Caucasian, changed over the years. But this was the sort of fundamental idea. So, within a year, it was being used on middle-class subdivisions like Culver City in Los Angeles, and then working-class subdivisions. So, by 1910, this is we're talking like five years the Los Angeles Housing Commission predecessor of one of my clients <laughs> ironically says in a report mexican americans would be able to find places to live if only every lot wasn't surrounded you know wasn't uh, didn't have one of these covenants on it what made this even more powerful was realtors then conspired i think that's the right word with local officials to require in a whole new city like Glendale which would eventually have 100,000 people, that nobody, no developer could get approval to build there unless they had such covenants, so you had an entirely white city. And that that, that relates to developments where the owner,
2: original owner, subdivides and can impose that when they sell. What
3: about existing housing? So again, and this only took a few years later, realtors who were selling existing homes said we can use the same marketing tool, too. So they circulated petitions, and just neighbors, Pasadena was sort of the classic case of this, and they circulated petitions that you would sign a deed restriction on your own home, and when 75% of the neighbors signed one, it would go into effect. What did that mean? If If one of you or the person you sold your house to 15 years later ever sold it or rented it even, to an African-American, all the neighbors could sue. Whoever had bought it would lose their money. And so this this became known as the Covenant Plan. This got adopted throughout the country. So by the 1920s, we're in a world in which half of the existing homes in the country and the vast majority of new homes are controlled by racial covenants. So what other tools are being used as we move on to...
2: to- spread uh, this segregation. So for example, tell us about redlining or FHA policy. What other tools are being used and promoted, I assume, by the realtors to, to
3: intensify this? So remember, not every property was covenanted. Covenants expired a certain time unless they're renewed. Actually, they invented the first homeowner's, where homeowner's associations in America come from. They came from these first subdivisions, from JC Nichols, to enforce these. But we're talking by, and I I I really need to answer this in terms of the justifications, because to understand how the federal government got involved, how the institutionalized segregation, you have to understand the justifications that realtors used. And that's really the theme that runs through this story. So by 1918, there's a meeting of high-end developers, um, a confidential meeting, J.C. Nichols and McDuffie and others from around the country. And they're talking, and Nichols says to the others, you know, I've been approached by some of the top Jewish families in Kansas City, and they're saying, why can't I buy a home in your in country club estates? And he says, you know, the more I think about it, it seems, by George, you know, this seems so undemocratic, so un-American. How can we set these limits? And the other developers said, are you crazy? Um, and he backed off. He didn't sell to Jews or Catholics for the next 30 years. <coughs> But what it showed was the problem that realtors had. They had no ideology. They had no way of explaining what they were doing other than this is just a tool for marketing homes. So what they decided was they came up very deliberately with an axiom, which they pronounced as being scientific and objective and economic, that undesirable human elements, this is the words of the leading appraiser in the country, undesirable human elements depreciate property values. Minority moving into a white neighborhood is gonna lower property values, and they said, by 50%. Every textbook in the country, and it was the realtors who sponsored and published the textbooks, every appraisal manual for the next 25 years stated this as an objective fact. The Portland Real Estate Board in 1920 says, not because of any prejudice, for we have none, but our members will not sell to any minority because it will hurt property values. This method gave them an argument, a way of imposing this discipline on other brokers who weren't members of the realtors and of convincing owners not to sell without them. And they adopted a code of ethics in 1924 that said we'll expel any member from the business and we'll freeze out the business of anybody who violates that. This idea... This axiom, so accepted by every economist, became the tool when FHA was created in the middle of in the early depression. It was the realtors who were the key designers of it and the key lobbyists for it. it. They it became they viewed it as their branch of the federal government. They created its programs, which were incredibly successful for white Americans. Realtors in each city, three leading realtors in each city drew up the bases of the redlining maps. Redlining maps was one of the rules, but requiring covenants was another. So you now had, if you fast forward, it's now 1939, and you're Herbert U. Nelson, who was the executive secretary of the Realtors National, and he's sitting in his office in Chicago, you have a system which is almost perfectly designed. You have racial covenants in so many places, you have racial steering, you have the Realtors created each real estate board would create uh, you know, their own committees to make certain because they were expected by local officials and neighbors and homeowners to whom they'd sold the idea that a single minority, a lawyer, a doctor, would ruin the neighborhood for everybody. This system was now being run by the federal government. So you now had a perfect system, in effect, to continue this forever. So by the late
2: 40s, you have... Clearly segregated lines using all of these tools, but in 1948, uh, the courts took a look at these uh, covenants, and they and the, and the argument was these are perfectly legal by previous case law because this is just a private contract between two people. The government isn't imposing this and is not requiring it, and um, therefore there's no state action in civil rights law. But in 1948, the Supreme Court changed that. What did
3: they do? And Did that change the situation on the ground? There are no... Spoiler alert. No. (laughs) It didn't change the situation on the ground. But let me give you the context, because again, it's about arguments. So it's World War II, and appraisers, some pushed by the NACP and so forth, start doing studies about these property values, and they find out it's bogus. It's not true. And for obvious reasons. People who are restricted and can't live in 95% of neighborhoods and 98% of new homes, they're winding up having to pay 20 to 30% more for the same quality unit. So if they pay a speculator to be a, a shill to help buy in a, in a white neighborhood and they're paying extra, prices tend, if anything, in two-thirds of the cases went up, not down. But that was not part. And it turned out Luigi Laurenti at uh, UC Berkeley went back. He went back to every author of one of these textbooks. Textbook, the textbooks were taught at 165, 165 universities. And he said, can I see the studies? Turned out there was never a study. Mid-century 20, America, our entire suburbs, were basically built on a lie. So, so this property value idea got discredited. So they couldn't use this anymore. And at the same time, you have millions of GIs coming back from a war that all the propaganda of from both parties, had been this is a common war for freedom f- against racist dictatorships of Hitler and the, and the Japanese, and here are these people coming back. Some courts start saying, well gee, maybe these covenants really are unconstitutional." This doesn't seem like Ameri- you know, American. And President Truman appoints a, a civil the first president's committee on civil rights in response to an African American veteran two hours out of the army um, having his eyes put out on a bus in uh, uh, South Carolina and not, you know, and nobody's prosecuted for this. And he creates a president's committee to, to figure out what to do about civil rights. He's fearing the KKK is going to come back like it did um, after World War One, And this president's committee says the biggest threat to American freedom is segregation, to the promise of American freedom, freedom meaning freedom for everybody, shared freedom. And they say it's the first recommendation, two recommendations, key recommendations that Truman can do himself. One is desegregate the armed forces, and the other is intervene in the case the NAACP is bringing against racial covenants in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court unanimously have to say only six members because three of them recused themselves, presumably because they had racial covenants on their own home. The Supreme Court says, you know, for a court, it's one thing to have a private contract, but for the court to enforce racial covenants, that's government action. That violates the 14th Amendment. How do realtors respond? So you have to understand they've built up an entire system and a set of business practices and expectations among their clients as to this is what they're going to manage for them. So the Los Angeles board puts together, drafts a U.S. constitutional amendment to overturn the 14th Amendment. And they approve it, and the California Realtors Association, and it would basically create apartheid. This is 1948, the same year it was apartheid was created in South Africa. Their lawyers say to them, you know what, don't, you don't need to do this. This is unnecessary. It's provocative. Um, it, it's, you, know, you can do the same thing quietly. You can do it by racial steering, by simply making certain that nobody can work in real estate who does this. They use all sorts of methods, and if you just take the entire, from 1948 to 1960, as a single thing. This method is so effective, it intensifies segregation. In the entire decade, in the San Fernando Valley, 750,000 people, all the white areas, the Fair Housing Council there, of one black family that could buy a house. So you're you're saying racial steering, meaning that the realtors will do what? Steer? If you come in, if you're a black family and you come in looking for a house, they'll say, oh, that sign you saw, that's already, that was just sold. Or they won't have the keys. The stories from the interviews of realtors from this era, I sort of, you know, lay out in the book. um, Endless stories of deception and so forth. But more important, any realtor, any broker, anybody who works in real estate who dares to even show a house to a minority is going to be frozen out of the business and is going to have to find another line of work. So segregation continues despite the fact that the
2: uh, covenants have been declared unconstitutional or at least unenforceable. Um, so then we have actions on the political scene from the civil rights movement, Um fair housing laws at both the state and the federal level. Um, in fact, California passes a fair housing law. How
3: did the re- realtors react? So these laws started getting passed around the country because precisely because segregation it remained so strong after the Supreme Court case, and here were the people who had pushed it, and they said, we have to do something, so let's pass a law saying there can't be private discrimination. Okay. Um, and they start passing these laws in a bunch of states. In a couple of states, because is important, there wasn't, didn't have to be this way. Didn't have to be opposition. In Massachusetts and Colorado, the realtors, after some discussion, decided they could live with us and they supported the law. In California, in most parts of the country, in Washington State, in Seattle, where this became an issue, in Tacoma, um, in Detroit and Chicago, virtually everywhere else in the country, the realtors decided they would adamantly oppose us but they're losing in the legislatures and they're losing in the legislatures for a very key, for an obvious reason, which is how we're now in the height of the civil rights movement. This is, we're talking 1963, okay? And King's speech at the March on Washington, the civil rights act is you know, going before Congress. Lyndon Johnson's about to be reelected by the largest, mar- or elected by the largest margin in our history. How in that climate do you defend segregation? The realtors had used a line starting after World War II, when these returning GIs were, called saying, it's freedom of association. We have the right, every race, and every race has the same right, but it's basically a part of America, part of the constitution, not part of the constitution, that we have the right, everybody has the right to live in a neighborhood just with people like them. Blacks have this right, Chinese have this right, Koreans have this right, whites have this right. So we have this right. But freedom of association comes out. It's been used by the diehard hard segregationists in the South, by Bull Connor and so forth, you know, um, fighting school segregation and fighting the end of Jim Crow. So it's discredited. You can't use it publicly. So what line do they use? So here they are. They decide to oppose this fair housing law in California by putting on the ballot a state constitutional amendment that says neither the state nor any city can ever limit the absolute discretion of any owner in renting or selling property or using a broker to do so. So does much does this wording sound like the Bill of Rights, that when they put on the ballot and pollsters canvass African-Americans in watts, 65% of them say, well, that sounds a good idea until they're told what it means. So, they put this on the ballot, but their problem is they're politically isolated. The Chamber of Commerce, even their longtime ally, won't support them. No leading leading politician, not Ronald Reagan, not Barry Goldwater, will support them for fear of being seen as racist. So, they decide to run this campaign, a massive, you know, proposition campaign. You can imagine California, you see these today. This is Proposition 14. Proposition 14, 1964 ballot, and they cast this by redefining freedom to mean the opposite of what Martin Luther King has been speaking about and has been propelling the civil rights movement. That idea is of shared freedom, that the freedom of everyone depends on everyone else's. That's the political key to the engine of the entire civil rights movement. Spike Wilson, the head of the California Realtors, decides to turn that on its head. And he says he redefines individual freedom. And individual freedom means an owner's absolute right to discriminate. This is the right. Of course, realtors had spent fifty years, you know, uh, violating, if you will, with racial covenants, limiting owners' rights. But, but the important point was they redefined this idea, and they said, "This is we're we're the ones who are colorblind." This is the invention of colorblind freedom that we've heard so much about over the last thirty years. They say, "We're in favor of the same rights for everybody. Every owner should have the same equal right, the right to discriminate." And we're the ones who are in favor of equal rights, not, not the civil rights people. That's one of their lines. The second line they say, and this is a key, is that freedom is a zero sum. It's what you own, It's not. doesn't belong to the country as a whole and belong to everybody. Collectively, it belongs to you separately. Your own property surrounded in effect like your own white picket fence that you can control. and. This absolute individual right, this freedom of choice, they described, that was the words they used on freeway billboards, freedom of choice. Freedom of choice, they said, this is part of your individual dictates of conscience. Your right to sell a property, not for the most money, but for who you can choose to be it. This idea of dictates of conscience ties it to freedom of religion, and they use this theme constantly. Why freedom of religion? Because it seems like something sacred that can't be violated. Unlike freedom of speech and freedom of the press, which have always been, um, you know, limited, right? Somebody can't have total freedom of speech in a crowded theater because it may affect other people's rights. What they're doing is elevating a a right as being absolute. What you said at the beginning, Jay, which is anytime you define a right as absolute, it means somebody has no other. And so, what the realtors had done is they had taken a narrow right of owners. Spike Wilson wrote this Property Owner Bill of Rights that was published by realtors all over the country with a picture of a patriot from 1776. And it announced the absolute rights of owners. There's never a word there about the right to buy a house or to live in a house in the first place. So, if you, so the key to colorblind freedom to all these ideas is what you exclude. This argument was so effective because what it said to millions of moderate whites who didn't want to see themselves as racially prejudiced was to be in favor of Proposition 14 didn't mean you were prejudiced at all. It meant you believed in and supported individual freedom. So here we are at an election in California. Civil
2: rights movement is strong. Lyndon Johnson is crushing Barry Goldwater.
3: Reagan doesn't support it. What happened? Johnson wins by 60% of the vote. On the same ballot, the realtors win by 65%. By 75% of the white vote, and politically maybe the most key of all, by 80% of the white union vote, it would have been the key to FDR, the FDR old democratic coalition. Split the coalition, and it it showed... Did you want to no. jump in? Okay, so it... So it showed, and this proposition it would be ruled unconstitutional two years later. But what it said to conservatives around the country, who've been devastated by gold orders to of the of the 65 million votes in the election, 24 million went for gold order, you know, 40 percent. And of those people who were surveyed in, in um, you know exit polls, only a quarter of them voted for him because he was a conservative. The rest simply because he was, you know national party leader. So you now have conservative movement on its heels. What do they do? Here's a message. Here's a way of talking about freedom that can be used on any issue. When it's declared unconstitutional, the moment it's declared unconstitutional, Ronald Reagan is running for governor of California, says, dips his feet in the water and says, you know, this is this is these justices of the court who are violating the popular will, and then he starts adopting the realtor's language, saying if an individual wants to uh, discriminate against a Negro or others in uh, selling or renting his house, it's his right to do so. But he adopts it not merely for this, for, on this one issue, but as a general way of talking about freedom, and propels Reagan and the conservative movement,
2: and it also pits. The conservatives, as the victims of aggressive
3: government action to enforce this over their rights. Right. Remember, they portrayed themselves as if discrimination is a matter of individual choice. You can see from everything I've described, discrimination and segregation was the result of organization. But they're picturing now, they're saying, we're not the enemies of minorities. Spike Wilson says, Am I anti Negro? By God, I am not. I am their champion. This is his quote. The enemy, the people to oppose, is government trying to extend rights for others. Because what isn't freedom, if you define freedom very narrowly, think about in vaccines and mandates or guns or anything else. If you define freedom very narrowly, it's this narrow right. Everything else, the right to buy a home in the first place, becomes what the realtors called it, a special privilege, a social privilege. Nobody has the right to own a home. And... This notion, and this is special privileges for special groups. So you can hear much of the rhetoric we're hearing now. Why did this become so successful? I think this is really the key. Why has this reshaped the country for the last 50 years, this idea? I think there are three reasons. One is the time conservatives were divided between libertarians and social conservatives, school prayer and so forth and traditions here was a use of libertarian language, the language of absolute individual freedom, as a way to enforce community tradition, community conformity, the exact opposite of libertarianism. But it used this idea, and this rhetoric perfectly united the conservative movement on every issue. This idea of absolute freedom for a single narrow right could be used on every issue, so the more issues it was used on, on guns, on, you know, making the Second Amendment mean what it meant, on abortion, and everything else, you may think of these all as separate issues that would sort of fragment a movement. But because it was the same message, that government is taking away the freedom of ordinary Americans, you're absolute right, it unified the movement because the message was the same constantly, and so it reinforced that. The third reason, and so it created a transcendent reason beyond ordinary politics to split the, you know, for working class white Americans to be against liberal government. And the third reason, and this is sort of the one that really brings us to today, is it created a new ideology for what was a new Republican Party. The Republican Party in 1964, 80% of the congressmen voted for the Civil Rights Act and then for the Voting Rights Act and they were seen as really no different by you know this era from from democrats the idea of a republican party what became today's republican party was born by charles wallace collins who was a um a southern uh, bank banking lawyer and a racist in 1947 when truman's committee got appointed he could see the handwriting on the He said, the National Democratic Party and the National Republican Party, they're going to compete for the votes votes of of, uh, African Americans in big cities. The only way to preserve Jim Crow is for Southern Democrats to leave the National Democratic Party and create an alliance with those Northern Republicans who will join them in a common alliance with two messages. Restrict the federal government from regulating business and from regulating civil rights. This led to the Dixiecrat Rebellion in 1948 when Strom Thurmond ran outside the Democratic Party. But in 1964, after Goldwater won five southern states, when Strom Thurmond joined the Republican Party, such a party was now possible. This was a new idea, a national conservative party, something that didn't exist. But it needed an ideology that could work both in the North and in the South. The realtors had been forced because they're working in California, in a liberal moderate state, to use language of colorblind freedom that could work anywhere. If it could work in California, they could win elections anywhere. So it created an idea, together with this notion of uniting the conservative movement, that could shift the country to the right for the next 50 years.
2: Before we go too far and talk about vaccines, I want to get back to housing for a second. So here we are... um, with a populist notion, a libertarian notion, that actually supports segregation in a way. We've got it on the ground, even though a lot of the legal issues um, are, are going against it. What's the future for desegregating our communities? So
3: the key thing to understand is federal fair housing law got passed in April 1968, three days after Martin Luther King was assassinated with fires burning in a 100 cities and troops out guarding the capital. It was like the final victory of the Civil Rights Movement. But it was a victory that was shadowed by Proposition 14 because every congressman knew from this California vote how popular the realtor's argument had been, the one they kept trying to make around the country. So the law was weakened. It had no administrative enforcement mechanism. It was largely unfunded. And it's remained weak ever since. And part of the reason segregation remains, this is sort of, you know, I think the biggest picture here, or the biggest takeaway in terms of segregation today, is it would have taken strong government action to have overcome the legacy the realtors left behind. Fragmented suburbs that were divided, preci- created precisely with single family zoning, I haven't talked about, that was invented to support racial covenants. Um, with a history of discrimination, um, with individual pressures, all these things were created. It would have taken strong government action to reverse that. But at every point along the way, efforts to do so have been attacked by using this language of freedom. When um, a, 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 a fair housing law has a mandate to affirmatively further fair housing, the government programs should go to communities they should be assessed on whether they're supporting integration. When George Romney, Nixon's uh, Secretary of Housing sort of took this seriously in 1970, Lincoln quashed this by saying, segregation is the result of individual choice of majority and minority individuals, the realtor's language. When Reagan became president, his attorney general, William French Smith, had been the realtor's lawyer on Proposition 14. They basically dramatically reduced enforcement of fair housing. Um, in 2020, after the Obama administration had tried to publish again this formula for housing, the Trump administration said, We're going to defend the suburbs against low income housing. So fair housing has always been a target. And so if you ask what can be done, at one level, there's specific things. For example, if realtors who still often engage informally, I mean, Official position of realtors is very much in favor of fair housing. But in every study, you see at individual real estate agents, appraisers, lenders turning down African-Americans for loans at twice the rate of whites with the same credit scores. There's individual discrimination. If the penalties for that was you lose your license, and you lose your license to the federal regulated institution, that would make a difference at the individual level. But at this broader level, dealing with zoning and dealing with communities, it's this issue, it's the it's the power of this idea of freedom and it's power in our politics and what it's led to that makes it so hard. So
2: I'd like to open it up to some questions. I have some more if we don't have enough, but um, there's a very really good question floating around, and that is can you address segregation with respect to multifamily housing and especially how that relates to zoning and probably packing in um, into smaller areas, multifamily
3: housing, and I guess raising the cost as a result. Yeah. You know, so just a little background. So the first idea of single-family zoning, was again, it was the realtors who promoted zoning in the first place. And the first idea of it, of single-family zoning, was created by the same Duncan McDuffie who created Covenants in Berkeley in 1916. He wanted to protect the area around his subdivisions He built homes, by the way, for 35,000 Californians, all of which were racially racially restricted. Um, He wanted to protect this against what he called a Negro dance hall that might get built nearby. He created single family zoning. That was the first model of single family zoning and its history comes out of that history. So, single family zoning has been used as a tool of racial segregation. Um, It was actually in Massachusetts, sort of, you know, overturning, I, I didn't realize this, in the 1920s when they passed zoning, they require a two-thirds vote to overturn single-family zoning. They changed that. So there's a, a big battle going on about that. And to give you a flavor of how this idea of freedom affects us, in 2015, uh, Mario Rubio and other, other Republicans introduced a bill that would basically say to end this mandate under fair housing and say, there's a freedom of community choice, a freedom to zone. So freedom meaning the right to exclude. So this is an ongoing battle at every level of our government. And multifamily? Well, that's what multifamily is about, being able to have something other than single family zoning. You know, I think it's interesting, I don't know if
2: you're aware of it, but there is a relatively hot political issue in Seattle because of our need for additional housing, primarily multifamily and we're zoned a high percentage of Seattle as single family. And a real issue of whether we should push back on that to change it. And you could argue that it has racial overtones for sure. It probably was developed out of that. But now it's
3: about mixed income and providing housing, given our housing crisis. I mean, there are lots of issues here. We're dealing with an affordability crisis. The notion is how can one take a collective view of an entire metropolitan area, as opposed to the fragmented view of individual suburbs that were created. So it isn't like there's a single right answer to this, but the notion of balancing all these needs is sort of the same notion of balancing the rights of everybody. So
2: let's go back to your definition of freedom, or two definitions of freedom. Do you see a root forward to basically rationalize the two or are we in conflict in the zero-sum
3: game inevitably? Part of the problem, two problems, that, you know, in 19, at the March on Washington, when Martin Luther King spoke, he used the word equality once and freedom 20 times. And since then, since conservatives have adopted this language of freedom, liberals and progressives largely abandoned freedom as their issue. And so during the last election, it's the Republicans who say, only people who vote for us are the only freedom-loving Americans. So, it's, And part of this came out of viewing this language of freedom as purely, you know, it's just a cover for racism. But not realizing how powerful it is, and how important it is, how it gets so many working class, white working class Americans to vote against their own economic interests or their own health. Um, in its name as a sacred value. Unless you combat this idea of freedom, it remains and reinforces itself. And so to me, and part of the problem is, there's just one word, right? freedom. And so American, you know, you survey people from across the entire political spectrum. Everybody will, people who disagree on nothing will agree that freedom is the country's highest value. And you sort of therefore implicitly assume that what Ronald Reagan meant by it—go to Donald Trump—Ronald Reagan meant by it was roughly the same as Jimmy Carter or maybe Joe Biden. It's the same basic idea from the Declaration. The whole story of my book is really that it's not the same idea. That here's an opposite idea that was deliberately created to oppose the civil rights movement, to oppose extension of civil rights. And so we're dealing with what Lincoln called during the Civil War, two mutually incompatible ideas of freedom. And to me, the first step in dealing with that is to call these by opposite names. The ones I would use are exclusive freedom, meaning the absolute freedom of some that doesn't depend on what happens to others, and inclusive freedom, which means the freedom that belongs to the country that inherently belongs to all. And by constantly calling out and saying, Oh, you're talking about freedom on abortion? You're talking, about, you're talking about exclusive freedom. We're talking about inclusive freedom. So I think, to me, it making, realizing where these ideas came from, that one of them came out of segregation and was deliberately designed this way, understanding its elements, what are the features that make it work, and naming it is like a really important step and reclaiming the idea of freedom for those who believe it belongs to all. And so in the context of vaccinations,
2: uh, the freedom to uh, not be vaccinated to protect your body, you would say is an an excluding or exclusive
3: freedom. Um, It's the idea. Exclusion means it's fundamentally based on this idea of there's an absolute right that's your personal right that's a zero sum that doesn't depend on what happens to anybody else. So to understand. What's going on in the country today? This is my perception of why vaccines and masks have become such an issue. The conservative movement and the Republican Party that's wedded itself to it, have become so dependent on this idea as the fundamental idea to drive everything that they can't unwed themselves from it. And so you see um, DeSantis in Florida, Going against the most basic conservative principles of school, you know, of local school control or of businesses being able to decide on their customers and their workers, he's violating those rules because he's launched his entire political campaign on this side that the left is coming to take your freedom. So when it comes to Mass Massachusetts, he has to view it through that lens. He doesn't have; it doesn't look like he has some choice. When Abbott comes out against you know, mask mandates in schools in Texas, it's because he adopted mandates a year ago and he's being attacked on the right by challengers who are attacking him for violating American freedom. In Michael Wolf's new book about Trump, when his advisors a year ago, are, or what is it, a year, year and a half ago now, are told that politically it would be wise for him to support mask mandates because it will reduce vaccinations, It'll, I mean, reduce... Um, the epidemic and will allow jobs to come back he says it would be off-brand so what you have is an entire party that to violate this credo would be off-brand the the dynamics of this party over 50 years have inherently been toward only toward only those people who will make this definition of freedom the only definition So it isn't like, you know, it's, it's easy for people on the left to think, these people are crazy, or why are they adopting these things? They don't have a choice. They've, they've, they've trapped themselves. I don't know if trapped is the right word. They've put themselves in a position in which this is the only issue. So we're looking for more
2: questions if people have it. Um, otherwise, how do you see them working their way out of this trap? I don't have to give
3: them advice, but I'm just curious how, how you think this might uh, turn out. I mean, I think, they'll well, part of what's happening is, and you can see it, I mean, in the last year, uh, you, know, uh, you know, between January 6th and the mask mandates and the vaccines, more and more, this notion has, is an irreconcilable, irre- it irreconcilably divides us. And that was its purpose the purpose of this idea of freedom was to cement divisions, originally racial divisions and real estate, but it's to cement divisions. Using freedom this way can only do that. It can only reinforce divisions and make them irreconcilable and make them seem that to do anything else would be to violate a sacred principle. So So, I think we're on a path toward making these things irreconcilable, and the only way to to respond to it is to recognize it for what it is and respond to it in terms of freedom itself.
2: So if it is irreconcilable and in conflict, then someone
3: is calculating that there are enough votes on the one side as opposed to the other. Or that if you don't have enough votes that you can limit other people's voting rights. I mean it, it threat this idea of this idea of freedom being so important, it inherently overrides democracy. Because it's, it's based on the idea that freedom belongs to those people who deserve it the most. For the realtors, it was the people who happened to own houses at that time, who by definition, since the realtors kept blacks from buying houses, were only white people. But it's the idea that freedom really belongs to some people, that they
2: deserve it. And that's what it's an the issue. There's is a really wonderful question uh, out there. You have laid a lot of culpability on realtors. I'd say that's an understatement. <laughs> um,
3: how have they received your book? Uh, well, I, I haven't heard. Um, um, I did get photo... No, no, no. Well, first of all, look. In 1968, after the Fair Housing Act was passed and after another, another Supreme Court case, the realtors announced in their publication, they gave advice to all their members. They said, um, we have to stop. We can't continue arguing this. They said the Supreme Court decision particularly is so definitive uh, against housing discrimination that you can't do this anymore. And they said, sort of laid bare all their arguments about colorblind freedom. They said, the Negro, as of today, is a free man when it comes to real estate. And they changed the name of all their associations, all their organizations. Now the National Association of Realtors was called National Association of Real Estate Boards before that changed it, and on their official letterhead it says, we acknowledge the past. We acknowledge this history. They've kept all their archives. I spent two days at their archives, you know, going through the the files. They've kept all this. They acknowledge this past. They're very publicly on record in favor of Fair Housing. Um, I don't know you know, I don't know how they'll react to my book. (laughs) Well, I think um I've enjoyed it
2: a lot, and I hope everyone else has. And I think with that, we'll call it evening. And thank you all for joining. The book is Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspire to Segregate Housing and Divide America by Gene Slater. Thank you very much, Gene.
1: everyone? It's 8.35 p.m. on the West Coast, Friday evening, October 29th, 2021. We're waiting for Roland Martin, unfiltered YouTube channel. His show notes for tonight says, West Virginia Senator Joe Man- Manchin meets with leaders of the top civil rights groups. Today is Friday, October 28, 2021.
4: Coming up by Roller Martin on Filters, streaming live with the Black Star Network, live from Indianapolis, Indiana uh civil rights leaders they meet with senator joe Manchin over the, before the people act the question is is he going to do what's necessary in the filibuster we'll talk with melanie campbell the national coalition of black Civic participation about that particular meeting also it's a do not call list for cops uh, in maryland uh two states attorneys have made it clear these cops have serious credibility issues and they will not call them to uh, the witness stand in a significant number of cases. Uh, Also, the Supreme Court rescinds Oklahoma death row inmate Julius Jones' state of execution. Now the countdown is on for his clemency hearing uh, in that particular state as well. Also, NAACP, they're urging professional athletes not to sign with Texas teams. Why? We'll explain on the show as well. Uh, Plus, my book club segment, I'm going to talk about uh, a new book called Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspire to Segregate Housing and Divide America. It is a fascinating conversation. If you want to understand the housing crisis in America today, it all dates back to policies in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Folks, you don't want to miss that. All of that, it's time to bring the funk on Roller Martin unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. What can you buy?
1: Okay, the YouTube channel Roland Martin will be in a few seconds and the interview that he did with Gene Slater on his new book is worth your time listening. It's all the way to the end of the program. So, I'm going to jump ahead and see if I can find it. Oops. Find it from the beginning. It's absolutely the best. Today is a fascinating conversation
4: that you don't want to miss, that you're only going to see right here on Roland Martin streaming Live on the Black Star Network. We'll be right
1: back after this commercial break then he'll interview Gene Slater it's about 30 minutes maybe an hour interview but it is quite fascinating I'll see if I can get it started from the beginning we almost Almost had the beginning of it. here we go
4: Let's get get right into it, it, it it's very interesting to me whenever we have this conversation and folks talk about, oh, well, you know, African-Americans, I mean, look, we're all on the same page and and, and we're all in the same boat. And and these things dealing with race, those things were just so long ago. And what I keep trying to explain to people is that you cannot negate what has happened uh, since 1619, but you can't also act as if Everything stopped for African-Americans with the end of slavery. You have to deal with the 92 years of Jim Crow. And one area where we are still impacted in 2021 is housing segregation.
3: Yes, that's exactly true.
4: And we talk about that. So, so bring us in, in terms of into 2021, uh, into the 21st century, where the average person uh, walking around doesn't really understand how devastating uh, housing segregation uh, has been and how it continues to impact African Americans and others.
3: Right. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that housing segregation was an invention. It wasn't like the norm. It wasn't it was part of the myths that the realtors promoted that segregation was always the way it was. Segregation was invented mean, it was the same way as the airplane was invented at about the same time in the early 1900s as a marketing tool by the country's realtors who then used racial covenants, racial steering, um, shaped federal programs, federal housing programs in the depression, all to enforce segregation. And there were great battles, uh, finally, when this continued by the early 1960s, African-Americans were excluded still from 98% of new homes and 95% of existing neighborhoods, um, and with tremendous disinvestment because all federal money and federal investment went into the all-white suburbs that were being created. And that legacy from directly from that history, from the differences in, in house wealth that were created in that era, from the creation of single-family zoning, which realtors um, were the key promoters of as a way to support keeping uh, cities all white of fragmenting local suburbs. That legacy of the view that an African-American or minority moving into an all-white neighborhood would destroy that neighborhood, that that legacy remains and remains powerful. One of the ways... Um, One of the best examples of this, I think, was a study done by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago in 2017. They looked back at the lines that were drawn on redlining maps in the 1930s. Um, Redlining maps were created when the realtors shaped FHA. They were its key lobbyists. They helped draw up the maps. And what they did was they said, okay, and the maps, by the way, everybody talks about them now, but at the time they were secret. The NAACP didn't have copies. Nobody had copies of them. Um, what, so they looked back. Federal Reserve in 2017 went back and looked at the lines on those maps where they were drawn simply down the back, you know, the, the edge of a street. And at the time, there were very little differences on three blocks to the right and three blocks to the left, six blocks to the right, six blocks to the left. They were arbitrary lines that were drawn to try and distinguish neighborhoods where presumably there would be all it would permanently be all white. And so that the federal government could make loans. So they looked at the differences back in the 1930s. There were almost no differences on either side of these lines. In 2017, these differences had tr- were tremendous in terms of home ownership rates, in terms of the prices of homes, in terms of housing condition, and overcrowding and investment. So in effect, the history of that era, the legacy that was created during those 60 years of formal segregation, government backed segregation, has compounded over time. It's compounded, as I say, geographically in terms of, and, you know, by cities, by single family zoning, by fiscal zoning, by what can be invested in areas. It's compounded in terms of racial wealth when blacks were denied the ability to participate effectively in FHA programs, in VA programs, in the loans that were made by banks for decades after decades, this had, at a time when housing prices were roughly, you know, a fifth in real terms what they are today, this has had an enormous impact on on the country today and on the persistence of segregation. So I think there are these direct economic legacies um, but there are also political legacies as well which have made which have tremendously weakened efforts at fair housing and efforts at integration. So
4: and this is the thing that for so many people, again, especially a lot of white Americans who don't understand how deep embedded this has been in our system. You know we're not talking just about, that southern town we're not talking about oh uh this particular area uh in uh the the, the, in 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 the ghettos or the slums uh, of new york no what we're talking about was national we're talking about how the federal government the purse billions of dollars created this racially segregated system that we have been trying to claw our way out of and then when we look at our neighborhoods today our schools today when we look at the resources in these areas when we look at what was built and what was it when we look at what is dilapidated today all of these things go back to this housing segregation in the united states of america
3: yes so you know I've worked in, you know, housing, affordable housing for 50 years, starting with looking at every abandoned building in the South Bronx in the 1970s. worked on all sorts of things. And, you know, in 30 states and, you know, hundreds of cities. And one of the things without my understanding, of the history of it was the similarity of the patterns of, you know, inner city ghettos, of border lines, of all white suburbs as though this was somehow a natural phenomenon. It was just always this way. It was this way because it was created this way. The realtors, which is, was the organized real estate industry, the local real estate boards in every city in the country were the ones who created and promoted residential segregation, would kick out any and freeze out of the business, any realtor who sold to a minority in a white neighborhood. That was their code of ethics. And they imposed this system system of racial covenants, and then in the 30s, they shaped, they were the key lobbyists for the federal housing programs, which then took the racial system the realtors had created informally and ad hoc, neighborhood by neighborhood, you know, going around organizing petitions from neighbors paid by Bank of America and other banks to get petitions for racial covenants. This was now organized in an institutional way by the federal government. The Federal Housing Administration and the creation of long term fixed rate low down payment mortgages that didn't exist at the time was probably the most powerful invention in the history of housing finance in the history of the world. It helped create a tremendous affordability. You could buy a home for less than it cost to rent. But that program was designed and shaped by the realtors to work for white Americans and to keep areas exclusively white. And so the reason the patterns are exactly the same in 350 cities is because they were designed to be exactly the same out of the same blueprint, which then had the consequence picture picture the 1930s when if you're a developer, you're a builder and you're building, you can get an FHA commitment only if you show you have racial covenants or you're in far off suburbs far from any minorities, you can get a commitment for, for 100% for financing uh, on 100% of the homes in that area. You can get a commitment for all the dollars that's going to cost you to build that sometimes for more than that. Um, but if somebody wants to invest in housing in, an, in a mixed racial neighborhood, they can't. There's no money for that at all. So it was like starving some areas and putting money elsewhere. The other thing that I think it's important to recognize is this racial system was originally excluding anybody other than Caucasians. Um, and Caucasians meant what realtors decided in each area often it meant Jews, Italians, Hispanics, um, Japanese, Chinese Americans. Over time and after World War II, as more of these groups became accepted by realtors basically who were the gatekeepers became accepted as white as being allowed to move into the neighborhoods. What you had with the remaining neighborhoods, which had always been the racially mixed areas of cities became effectively all black because they were the only people who were prevented from moving out. And that's that's why the system is so universal. North and South is exactly the same. And from the point of view of those people who are excluded they're African-Americans, it was a tremendous denial of opportunities, both in housing, they had to pay 20 to 30% more for the houses in the same condition. Because like in any, you know, restricted market, you have to bid up the costs. Often if they could move into white neighborhoods by paying speculators that difference. So it had that enormous difference. And the, the pattern was the same in every city in the country. So I think that that's really important to understand. This wasn't a phenomenon simply in the deep south in some ways. The first real racial covenants that created America's restricted neighborhoods were in Berkeley, California, a mile and a half from the University of California campus. They weren't in Alabama or Mississippi. Segregation was created in the north. All right, folks, that's got to video in just one moment.
1: He has quite a few commercials mixed in here. I'll do my best to get around the commercials where I can. This is a heck of an interview. We don't want to miss it. God, Ronald Reagan and how he was
4: this political god. fact of the matter is, Ronald Reagan was a racist. Ronald Reagan supported that statewide ballot initiative in California. There's a great article uh, that I actually I pulled up, uh, and the piece was how the L.A. Times helped write segregation into California's constitution. It was white populism in California uh that also drove this as well and so he and this is the precursor this is before the uh the fair housing act uh, of 1968 how white populism mm, echoes up today uh played a role in segregation and it was by design to say we go we're going to put it
3: into the law you don't have to sell to those people right right so Because segregation remained so powerful in the late 1950s, 1950s, let me give you another example from California. In the the entire decade of the 1950s, of 325,000 new homes that were sold in the Bay Area, 50 were without regard to race. 50 out of 325,000. In the San Fernando Valley, with 750,000 people living in all white neighborhoods, The Fair Housing Council knew of one black family that had been able to move into those neighborhoods. So that was how powerful and how organized the system of segregation was. It didn't depend on individual decision. It was an organized system, um, the realtors. When fair housing advocates, people trying to end this discrimination, passed a state fair housing law in 1963 called the Rumford Act. Fair housing, law, a very modest law that applied to a quarter of single family homes and to larger rental properties. The maximum fine was $500. And in the first 18 months, it handled like 82 cases or so within the state. When they passed this law, the realtors had a choice of how to respond. Um, in a couple of states, in Massachusetts and Colorado, realtors decided to go along and try and make this work. But in the vast majority of the country, and especially in California, which had half the realtors of the United States, they decided to organize a ballot proposition, a state constitutional amendment that would forever ban any type of fair housing, would create an absolute right, the absolute discretion of any owner to sell or rent to whoever they chose without any restriction by the state or any city, okay? This would prohibit any limit on residential discrimination. This was such a radical measure. No state had something like this in its constitution. The realtors were entirely politically isolated. No prominent politician at the time not Barry Goldwater who was opposing the US uh, 1960 Civil Rights Act nor Ronald Reagan would touch this proposition would endorse it for fear of seeming racist. So the realtors in order to win a campaign, and here they are in California, a fairly liberal, moderate state, um, with a popular two term governor, Pat Brown, who'd been re elected over Richard Nixon by making fair housing his highest priority. Um, a strong liberal legislature, the support of the big business, the support of um, labor unions, the support of all the church leaders and all the archbishops. How were the realtors going to combat that? without seeming racist. How can you run a campaign for a proposition that permanently denies people the choice of where to live and make that seem not like a racist campaign. And their technique was to take was to come up with the exact opposite of the idea of freedom that Martin Luther King talked about and was at the heart of the civil rights movement that, that anyone's freedom depends on everyone that freedom is something shared. They decided to turn this on their on its head and they created the the notion of absolute individual freedom and freedom of choice that now that came to shape the republican party that led to the rise of ronald reagan and it shapes our politics today and uh, what was at the heart of this was a couple of a couple of techniques and it's important to understand these techniques because this still drives. American politics on issues from vaccines to masks, um, you know, to guns, uh, to abortions, um, campaign contributions. It's the same idea. Rather than freedom meaning something that the role of government, the Declaration of Independence, is to secure these rights, to balance the rights of all so that nobody dominates those of others, just like in freedom of speech and freedom of press, where government has to balance those rights, was to create an idea that freedom isn't that that freedom is your absolute personal property, like your home, with your absolute ability to do whatever you want, regardless of the rights of others, that your rights trump those of others, in other words, and that was the idea they created. And they called this they made this into the mantra of colorblind freedom by saying, we're in favor of the same rights for black owners and white owners. What was that right? the right to discriminate. Um, so they argued they were the ones in favor of equal rights trying to steal that message, you know, from the civil rights advocates, and they did something they, they then took a narrow right that nobody had ever talked about the right of an owner to decide they didn't want to just sell for the highest price, but to pick the race of who they were going to sell to a right nobody had ever talked about and realtors have spent 50 years violating. With racial covenants, they took that right and they elevated it as being the litmus test of American freedom itself. The same, and by totally ignoring the right to own a home, the right to choose where to live, the right to rent, they left out all those other parts and said, this is freedom. The same technique could then be used on guns, on abortion, on campaign contributions to elevate a single narrow right and say, this is the litmus test of freedom itself. The this, this other thing that they did was conservatives at the time were quite divided between um, social conservatives who were in favor of tradition and, you know, school prayer and so forth and wanted government controls to enforce tradition versus libertarians who were against government restrictions. So what the realtors did was they created the language of indiv- they used the language of libertarianism. Of individual, your absolute individual rights to do the opposite, to enforce past social traditions and say nobody can challenge it. In effect, it said you have an absolute individual right to a conforming community. And that's what we see today throughout this. And by creating a racially neutral language of freedom, they created the ideology for what became a new Republican Party. In 1964, 80% of Republican Congress, more than Democrats, voted for the Civil Rights Act and voted for the Voting Rights Act. This was a new, a new Republican Party emerged, one that had first been designed in the late 1940s by Charles Wallace Collins, a southern racist banking lawyer, to say if Jim Crow was going to be preserved, they needed an a allo- this. Southern Democrats needed to leave the Democratic Party and join with those Republicans who would agree to not want to restrict uh, local control of of rights, of civil rights in return for the federal government being kept out of business regulation. That party became possible in the mid 1960s and in the midst of Goldwater's debacle, this ideology became that ideology and Ronald Reagan picked up the language of the realtors. He didn't support Proposition 14, the realtor's proposition at the time, because it was a fair thing racist. Two years later, it proved popular, won 65% of the vote, 75% of the white vote at the height of American liberalism. Reagan then, when it was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, he picked up the realtor's language. He said if an individual wants to discriminate against a negro in selling or renting his house, it's his right to do so. It's his absolute freedom. And this he was sort of an amateur of trying to find a message. This provided this idea of freedom provided his message. And that's so what you're so what you're, so, so what you're laying saying. out,
4: and this is important, Jane. Yeah. And, and this is why I, I want to go beyond just so so what you're saying is that if you take this issue You take Senator Barry Goldwater's campaign against the Civil Rights Act. Uh, And a lot of people don't understand that the likes of William F. Buckley and other conservatives were in support of civil rights, but it was Goldwater's position, this notion of freedom, that shifted shifted the party. That you take Goldwater's position, you take this proposition, you take Reagan embracing the language, That is what has established today's modern-day Republican Party. Today's today's modern-day Republican Party has been born out of supporting segregation.
3: It came out of an idea that was designed to permanently divide Americans, racially, in terms of residential segregation. And they took this idea of using freedom, your absolute right, to permanently divide people, and they applied this to everything. So to understand why this is important, imagine a conservative movement that consists of all these very diverse causes, with some people caring about abortion, some people caring about guns, uh, some people caring about limiting civil rights. You had all these different campaign contributions or the Koch brothers about business regulation, climate change, whatever. If all these diverse issues, what unites them is the same vocabulary the same idea that absolute freedom is what's at stake and so instead of an sort of adventitious alliance of disparate groups that could break up easily over many issues you had the same reinforcing message that liberal government is out there to take your freedom away and that that's what and it's the dynamic of that message that's driven this party republican party so that only those people can aspire to lead it who endorse this and who view this. And so, you know, when I look at you know what's happened with vaccines and masks, for example, here's a sort of a, a new case of this. Why has this become such an issue? It's become such an issue because Republican leaders have no choice but using this idea of absolute freedom to oppose mask mandates and vaccine mandates. Here's DeSantis in Florida having campaigned and made his whole thing, the left is coming to take away your freedom. So he therefore has to violate the most basic conservative principles of local control of schools and employer, you know, employers deciding on how to treat their employees. He has to do those things to maintain that ideology. Here's Abbott in Texas, who's being run against on the right for his own mask mandates a year ago, having to oppose mask mandates. Here's Donald Trump, told by his advisors it would be politically wise if there were mask mandates and support for masks during the presidential run. And his response is that would be off brand. Right. Republican leaders are trapped by the message that's been created that has driven their party. This has become their only issue. And see, here's
4: the thing. Here's the thing that, 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 is, that is so important here uh, when, as, as, as what you've laid out and what we're talking about. It is that notion, freedom, freedom, even the use of that word. The, the juxtaposition is that here you had a black freedom movement, the civil rights movement yes. that was based upon freedom. Yes. But then you had this appeal to white voters that essentially the Republican Party was saying,
3: you're losing your freedoms because of them. Exactly. That your freedom depends on not giving rights to other people. It's the very opposite of the idea that freedom belongs to the country as a whole and freedom is shared and your freedom depends on others. And so what you have, you know, it's, it's like the paradox at the heart of American politics that nobody talks about, um, that if you ask Americans right and left across the political spectrum who disagree on almost everything, what's the highest value of the country? What's the purpose of the country? They'll all tell you the answer is freedom. But as and the assumption is that we're talking about the same thing. That when Ronald Reagan talked about freedom, he was talking somewhat more or less about what Jimmy Carter or Joe Biden or somebody might be meaning by freedom. Say nothing of Martin Luther King. Okay, but that's not true. And part of what the history in this book I've written about the history of segregation in the realtors, part of this history shows this was deliberate. This was designed. As an alternative political vocabulary precisely to oppose that of the civil rights movement what you have are two opposite ideas of freedom part of you know where i come to in the book is to say if you want to change this vocabulary if you want to go back to you know martin Luther King used the word freedom 20 times in his speech at the march on washington he used equality once this was a movement based the right. power of the idea of freedom right because what, because what King
4: yeah. what King kept saying is he said in fact he said it on April 3rd 1968 when he said, be true to what you put on paper and the whole movement was America, we're going to force you to actually do what you put on paper because what's on paper is different from what you're actually doing. Uh, in action, and when you think about and, and the really broadness thing, Gene uh, 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 is that what people yeah. don't understand that this period was also the advance in the beginning, the underpinning of these conservative foundations, Heritage Foundation, uh, Escape melons, what they founded, all of these things, because they were also angry. That it was the federal courts, which is also why the Republican Party has made an assault on the federal judiciary a major Absolutely. part of their focus is
3: because they were angered at the federal judges were yes. taking their freedom. Right. You know, the Heritage Foundation in 1984, 20 years after Proposition 14, said the secret to victory in civil rights for conservatives, they were writing this in 1984 as advice to uh, the Reagan administration for their second term for the Justice Department. The secret to victory has been to redefine the terms that Americans were in favor of equality. They were against segregation. So the key to victory has been for conservatives to redefine the terms. The most critical of those terms was was the idea of freedom. That was the key to victory and with the notion. And so, you know, it's always, you know, where I started that led me to this book was I I was in a uh, graduate human rights seminar at Stanford, and I asked the question of myself. I said, why is it that on every issue, every issue affecting civil rights, conservatives argue that civil rights are violating American freedom. Where did that come from? Has that always been the case? And the answer is it goes back to this precise period in the 1960s as a way to oppose the civil rights movement, to say that your freedom means what the government is giving to is taking away and giving to somebody is allowing people not like you to have that. That's what your freedom means. You know, there's a lot of, you know, centrist Democrats sort of view what happened in the 60s as well. This was white backlash. as so though this was some, you know, sort of natural reaction to, you know, the uprising in Watts or to, you know, extremism or something else. No, it wasn't that it was an organized effort to claim a populist mantra in the name of freedom that was organized precisely to oppose any change in the, the kind of segregation that existed, that was so overwhelming. Um, it happened, this was a, as Martin Luther King talked about this, white backlash. This was before Watts. This was before, you know, the, uh, the Voting Rights Act. This was before those things. This was simply the first efforts to try and break down in the mildest way possible the limits of segregation that denied opportunities in everything, in jobs, in housing, in schools, um, in transportation. um, To break those down, here was the response. You know, at the time, to tell you how how much a change this was, they asked, you know, Goldwater only won 40% of the vote on the same ballot. Proposition 14 both in California and nationally and they asked voters at exit polls of this 40% how many had voted for him because he was a conservative and the answer was less than a quarter less than 10% of all voters voted for him because he was a conservative. This was the, the great debacle in the conservative movement everybody wrote them off. This language of homeowner rights the freedom belongs to you was the language that allowed the Republic the conservatives to then become the most powerful force in America for the next 50 years and shift the country more and more to the right. That's what's happened. All right, folks, back to that rollback on video in just one moment.
4: Oh, that spin class it was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice.
6: Settle in, kids. You'll be there a while. Ooh, where you going? Hi, this is Shira Lee
4: Hello, everyone. It's Kiara Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And with we're SWB. W- What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin
1: Unfiltered.
4: This is fascinating. Um, you know, I, I sit here, and, 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 and right here, I have a variety of books. I've got uh, white Supremacy Confronted by Gerald Horne, uh, W.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America. Uh, there's a book by Denton Watson called Lying in the Lobby. Uh, it's about Clarence Mitchell um, uh, and the NAACP. And what, 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 what I constantly am trying to, to explain to people is that for the, for the, the, the period that I call the Second Reconstruction, that I call that the the black freedom movement, the civil rights movement, the second reconstruction. Yeah. It is what you had here was, you had this moment where fight for our rights. And it was, and and, and when you talk about the the percentage of Republicans who voted for uh, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, but I remind people, I remind them that that last one was the toughest that Republicans aligned, Northern Republicans aligned with Southern Democrats to filibuster in the Senate, that Fair Housing Act. It was Senator Edward Brooke who was able to break it in early 1968. And the only reason the 1968 Fair Housing Act got passed is because King was assassinated and on April fifth, LBJ sent a letter to the House saying, "Let's honor the life of this of this man and pass the Fair Housing Act." And that's when it was signed. It was uh, it was signed uh, nine days later. But Republicans aligned because they said, "Okay, no look, now we, we didn't give y'all right to vote. We let y'all ride on buses and stuff along those lines. Oh, but hell no, when it comes to living in our neighborhoods."
3: Yeah. I mean, this, the, the, the Fair Housing Act was the one, and his prior efforts were the f- first major political defeat You know, Lyndon Johnson suffered in 1966. It took an enormous effort because the realtors, just as they had in Proposition 14, organized national letter-writing campaigns and political campaigns precisely about this. And it took both King's assassination, but also before that, Basically, legislative trickery to um, to lull the le- realtors into thinking this law that was being the Civil Rights Act of 1968 originally was only protecting civil rights workers in the South. It got through the House of Representatives just as that, and then was amended by um, Senator Brooke um, precisely because the realtors had not been paying attention to it. And then it got to the point, right? I mean, this was the whole strategy, was instead of having all the hearings and everything else, here's the biggest issue in some ways politically in the country, they had no hearings on this, nothing else. They just said, all right, we're just adding this to the law. Okay? And it was King's assassination that then made that you know, clearly possible. But what's important to recognize, so you think of this as the last you know, uh, great triumph of the Civil Rights Movement, but it was dramatically weakened by the fear of the populist revolt of Proposition 14. So by supporters as well as opponents, it got watered down. Funding was always very weak to it. It didn't have any administrative enforcement issue, any enforcement provision, which has been true. That's what the whole issue was in California over that law. And more important to this day, Fair housing has remained weak precisely because of the power of this idea of freedom to drive American politics further to the right. And so you look, so if you ask why segregation persists in this country today, you know, why African Americans still, you know, making $75,000 a year live in neighborhoods where the median income is $20,000. Why does that happen? Why are they so excluded? The answer is because of the legacy of that era. Partly, it's the weakness that fair housing has had. It's always been a target for conservative politicians. Say, oh, they created fair housing, so if people aren't living, you know, everywhere and they're dispersed, it must be because they want to, right? Not because they have no, not because segregation has continued. So they've used that messaging. But what's happened is, so if you if you can look at. At a couple of levels. If you really enforced fair housing, if people really lost their licenses for discriminating, or appraisers for appraising things improperly, or banks for turning down loans applications by affluent loans with the same credit scores at twice the rate as twice. if you really provided enforcement money for that, that would make a difference. And in the larger picture, what's going on is this idea is that it would have taken powerful government action federal action to enforce fair housing to make a difference and it's precisely the political legacy of this era that we're talking about this uh, idea of freedom that's been the the idea of uh senator rubio in 2015 you know they sponsor a bill you know for freedom to zone protect the right to zone the freedom to exclude they call that American freedom rather than the freedom to be able to buy a house. They say that's the basic freedom of the country, the freedom to control and shape the destiny of a community at a community level. It's the power of that idea that has prevented successful government action. And so you have the enormous legacy, the economic legacy, the household wealth legacy, the legacy of single family zoning, all those legacies. I'm taking enormous government action to overturn those. And that's precisely what this political legacy, this ideological legacy, freedom as a way to divide people, has made impossible. That's what I think is really at stake. The... <laughs> got Kenny, Hsu. Kenny Hsu is the author of An Inconvenient Minority and president of Color Us United. He uh, has worked as director for media outreach
6: against California propaganda. Those are your race preferences, and written a national publication, and written for national publications like City Journal, Journal, The Federalist, uh, The Daily Signal, and Washington Examiner. Uh, Kenny, thank you for coming back, brother. How are you?
5: Thanks for having me again. Absolutely.
6: Uh, We're going to chop it up about critical race theory and how it correlates to education in the school system. I don't Mm -hmm. want to presume what you know or believe about this topic, so I'm going to allow you to give us your sentiment.
5: we discussed previously, you know, while before we got on the call about what we wanted critical race theory, the definition of it, um, seems to me that you argue that critical race theory is challenges, liberal or mainstream approaches to racial justice, um, and argues that racism is, or the experience of racial inequity in this nation is primarily because of structures. Uh, Not because of individual prejudices. Um, My opinion on this matter is that when we, I want to correct
6: you. I want to correct you on one thing. That is the study of critical race theory. That does not mean that is the sentiment of everyone who studies critical
5: race theory. Sure. Just so you understand, there's a significant difference in that. Sure, sure. Well, I, when it comes to education. You know, when it comes to pedagogy and teaching children, I think we need a more empowering racial narrative than critical race theory. That's that's basically my argument. Okay, Uh,
6: you are aware that critical race theory is not taught in K through 12 education.
5: Uh, That's not true. That's definitely not true. Um, We've had I've, I've had the pleasure of investigating several districts that have instituted things like. Black Lives Matter in the schools. That's not critical race theory. The, the, you know, it's principles based off of critical race theory. It's principles based off of critical race theory. It's saying that the United States is a systemically racist country, uh, that white people are inherently prejudiced against black people, uh, that structures of society collaborate uh, to attempt to, you know, denigrate or destroy black people in this country. Yeah. That's critical race theory. So So, let me me help
6: you out here uh, because I think you're confused. Uh, Critical race theory is a theoretical framework. It's an advanced theoretical construct, uh, typically taught in advanced level collegiate studies. As a matter of fact, most collegiate studies or most college degrees do not require that you even learn one of those theories. But if you get to graduate, doctoral, even law school studies, you learn critical race theory. uh, You do certain research in social uh, research programs you're going to learn things like grounded theory etc that's a way to analyze data so it's are you aware of driven l- allow me to finish sir it's a yeah, data-driven yeah. approach um i will give you an example of what critical race theory uh, looks to deconstruct as a theory okay um let me take you to 1882 the chinese exclusion act of 1882 you want to explain to us what that act was about?
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. It excluded. Was it? it was a law passed by you know the federal government that excluded Chinese from coming to this country, and okay. immigrating successfully into this country.
6: Was that racist, bigoted, prejudicial? Of course. Okay. Was that constructed by a law statute, institutional government? Yeah, of course. It's the Chinese Exclusion Act. That's right. That's what critical race theory seeks to examine under the theoretical core that racism plays a part in the institutional norms, ordinances, laws, and statutes that are normative. During the time of its passing, it was normative. The majority of Americans agreed. The majority of those uh uh in the world at that time in our country agreed with exclusionary doctrine and it did it was not limited to the chinese there was exclusionary doctrine doctrine related to uh descendants of africans that said even if you're born on american soil if you are black you are african you are not in fact american that was another form of exclusionary doctrine critical race theory seeks to understand the connection between the law that was passed, which you have admitted was rooted in racism, and how to deconstruct it because it did, in fact, create an inequity
5: beyond the exclusion. That's it. It's real simple. And once Do, you, again, okay. not Do you believe we've made progress state. since then, since the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act? Yes,
6: sir. Absolutely.
5: Good. Yes progress has been made so I mean this is this is what this is what I'm talking about then I'm saying the way that race is taught in schools which is what I wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. we should teach race and yes we should teach the historical racism what I'm opposed to teaching is I'm opposed to teaching that that racism still defines people's abilities to get ahead in this country today
6: that's really interesting um you say that in the late 1800s laws did in fact limit um the chinese from getting ahead in this country but that has all of a sudden all of that has completely 100 percent evaporated correct
5: why would any reasonable person oppose equity my name is quay hannah i've spent my career standing up against racism in white america Speaking to students about why they should judge others without prejudice or bias, regardless of skin color. I think equity is an important value. I mean, it is gradually. I mean, it's not 100% of evaporated, mm-hmm. but it is gradually, yes. You know, grown okay. to be critical. Not a factor, theory does not disagree not a with factor that? in the elevation of people in this country. Yes. Critical race theory
6: doesn't disagree with you on the gradualism of progress and change. And so I don't know what beef you have with that. Let me take you back to um, your proclamation in the beginning of our conversation uh, that critical race theory is, in fact, taught in K through 12 education. Uh, There was a study. There was a survey done uh, by this was an American education survey uh, that said, hey, are you all teaching critical race theory? Ninety six percent of the educators said no. Uh, there is no critical race theory being taught in our institutions uh, and the vast majority of those educators polled were actually 100% against it ever being taught in K through 12 education, even those that were aware of the concept and generally friendly to the notion of critical race theory also say it should not be taught. In K through 12 education. My question to you is with 96% of educators, public school educators being surveyed saying, no, we do not teach that in the school system. And with the vast majority of them also saying it should not be taught in K through 12 education because it is an advanced theoretical framework. And with many of them actually being friendly to the concept of critical race theory, how is it that all of a sudden critical race theory inside of school systems has become a primary debate when it is really virtually not being done? And You have states like Texas that have passed laws, an entire state law that says if you teach the KKK, you cannot add deference to the teaching, meaning you cannot teach them as morally reprehensible. You cannot add deference, morality or ethics to that teaching anymore. Don't you find it more offensive that we can no longer call the KKK evil? In the United States of America, primarily by way of a state of Texas, uh, don't you find that to be more egregious in our education system than what maybe 4% of education, educators say they
5: teach? Hey, have you heard of critical pedagogy? Of course I have. Have you heard of Paulo Freire? Of course. Okay. So you must have heard of the term critical consciousness. Mm-hmm. The idea of critical race theorists in, in education... You, know, STEM bro, bro, you want to answer my question school. about Texas or the Texas law? So I'm tracing to you the, the valid concern that many people raise about critical race theory in schools. The, the, the Teachers College Columbia, Harvard Law School is implementing what critical pedagogy is, is the implementation of critical theoretical practices into education and in practice. So you're not going to say, OK, we're teaching you critical race theory, <laughs> but You're you're assuming the premises of critical race theory. I'll give you an example, a stark example. Ethnic studies recently passed in California. they done a ton of research on ethnic studies. It explicitly says, in its liberated ethnic studies model curriculum, we're going to use a critical consciousness to evaluate the marginalized races in this country. That is Blacks, Asians, uh, Chicano, uh, Latin Americans, and Native Americans. Ethnic studies the, is basically teaching from an oppressor oppressed framework. And within those, and I've, I've taken a look at the curriculum. That's what it is. It is critical pedagogy put into practice. You know, that's really interesting. So you still didn't address what I said about Texas
6: passing a law that says you can no longer provide deference in the teaching as it relates to the KKK, which is a known evil. Uh, I'm a former high school teacher. You don't just teach curriculum. You also teach character. And that's part of the process of education. It's not just about the knowledge. It's also about the application of that knowledge in the correct manner. Do you agree with the Texas law that says the KKK by law can never be taught as an evil or an adversarial aspect of the United States
5: of America. I would need to know more context about the Texas law.
6: Okay, you do that. We'll bring you back next time so you can chop it up
5: about that Texas law. You know, in fact, I wanted to talk about the things that we talked about last time, and I wanted to follow up with you because I did do some more research. Like, you brought up some studies, for example, that showed that uh, Asian people, by virtue of their last name, you know, if your last name is Shu or Wong, you're gonna, you're less likely to get callbacks, you know, and in interviews, which is a, a common thing. Well, I, I actually looked at new sure. Mac microeconomic studies, Tian Low, 2009. Right now, at this moment, conditional upon education, Asian males and black females earn more, <laughs> conditional on education, than the average American. So. In actuality, what you're seeing here—I mean—and and so this this is not a sir. Let me. just You need more education to make that's more what, in this
6: country. Anymore. That's that's what you have yeah. just proclaimed is one hundred percent untrue, based on statistical data. I, I, I white I, hey, white individuals. Ken L- Luo L- I, I'm Luo. I'm going to go ahead and cite something to you. I'm going to cite it to you, brother. Uh, sure. Based on the Department of Labor statistics, uh, black people, black males make around $0.70 on the dollar as their white male counterparts in a similar job, similar experience, similar degree. Black females are ticking uh, in a very similar way, around $0.68 per dollar, very same elements apply. Let me go ahead and highlight to you um, the 28% callback study uh, that was conducted by the University of Toronto and Ryerson University. They both their blind studies and had the same conclusive data. You can look this up when you get a moment. You can look it up while I'm talking to you. Job applicants with age and sounding names receive 28% less callbacks for an interview than if you kept all of the information the same and put an Anglo sounding name on the application. NPR reports that university researcher researchers base their results on data directly from the American Economic Association study. Kenny, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Uh, You are one of the Asian Americans. You don't. Do you feel that discrimination is a real thing in America that Asian Americans are actually discriminated against? Do you at least agree to that?
5: I mean, look at my book. My book is about Asian discrimination. It's called okay. "An Inconvenient Minority." It's about how the Ivy Leagues discriminate against Americans. You know, right, it's, so you it's Asian American well, So I'm not, I'm not, pri- I'm not, I'm not privy right? to the fact that people are discriminated against right. in this country all the time. For so you whatever, reason, that black folks are also age, race, discriminated against. You, yes. real simple question: that. Black people also are discriminated against as well. Correct? Of course. Okay.
1: Okay. But
5: the the the. In in certain scenarios, yes. Mm-hmm. But I, let me give you another thing. Right now, so are Asians if right now? Discriminated if you are against, right now. Let me ask you, are, brother
6: Kenny. Are Asians only discriminated against in certain scenarios? Scenarios, or is there discrimination against across the board?
5: Yeah, and only in certain scenarios. I okay. just brought up to you this study Tian Low, Asian Americans, you know, make Asian men make mm-hmm. higher incomes, comparative on education, controlled for education level. So do black women by the way, so do black women. So it's not necessarily a race thing, but I'll give you another Sir, example. That, that, the study that you're citing, Hey, if you're give black in second. this country today, Kenny, Dr. Richie, you want give me a one second, professorial brother. position, or you want to get into an Ivy League college, Kenny? you have a significantly higher chance, given your educational credentials, than Kenny? other people. So you're not just discriminated against in this system. That's what Kenny, I mean. To say. Let, let me, let me say this to you, man. I don't mean to inter- interrupt you.
6: Um, But I do have to, I do have um, two roles here. One, I am host of the show and I have to be moderator as well as a debater with you. Okay. If I were on your show, I would respect your format and program. I know how to be a guest in another man's home. I'm going to ask that you know how to be a guest in mine. Okay. Okay. All right. Let me correct you on one item. The study that you are mentioning is considered an outlier study meaning it is contrary to the normative study of 90 plus percent of the survey field. It is an outlier study with contrary data. The vast majority of the research science shows clearly that African-Americans make less on the dollar. That is simply the truth. And that's from the uh, labor of bureau statistics. Real simple study to find. It's not complicated at all. 80% of Asian Americans say that they are actively discriminated against and that the discrimination has led to employment discrimination as well. 59% said it was adverse, that discrimination was so adverse that it directly resulted in less pay from a job. And then you bring up the Ivy League institutions. Let me take you to Harvard because you did did some extensive writing about Harvard, right? Uh, Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Harvard. Uh, This is directly from the Harvard recruitment site that they report to the Department of Education. Uh, They started a race conscious system where they had to look at race as a variable. Are you with me so far? Right. Okay. your proclamation is somehow it created an adversarial atmosphere to the uh, recruitment or the acceptance of Asian American students. Am I right so far? Okay, here's the data, sir. According to those statistics that were submitted uh, and sworn by way of affidavit to the Department of Education, Harvard's admission statistics show that the share of its admitted class, that Asian-American students, after they looked at race and became a race-conscious institution, Asian-Americans grew by 27% in their actual student body. Asians were accepted into the institution at a higher level when race was a factor, not a lower level. And let me also do this because it's important to the conversation of the Asian community. You made a claim last time you were on my show. You said, hey, why do Asians do better at this? Why do they they do better at that? And truly, they do better in some areas. They do worse in some areas. But when you look yeah. at data, when you look at data, you have to look at the fine print, brother. So let me give you the fine print. The Asian community is broken down into various communities like Nepalese, Long, and others. Let me give you a stat. The poverty rate among the Napalese american which is codified as Asian-American in the survey, is 21% higher than the official poverty rate. They're actually poorer. When you look at Hmong Americans, they are 20% less likely to have a bachelor's degree than the average American. They are codified in the Asia statistics. And when you look at uh, Indian Americans, they are 70% of them have a bachelor's degree and are higher on the spectrum, more so than the average American. So you have fluctuations. If the idea was that the Asian community simply does better line by line and item by item, you you are now discounting the Nepalese. You are now discounting the Hmong. And if you're saying that somehow all you have to do, brother, is uh, do better and uh, not look at a uh, race-related system approach, then that means you stand against 80% of um, uh, Asian Americans who say, yes, racism has adversely impacted Me and my family. I believe those
5: personal stories inside of your community. Can I get a little time to talk here? Yep. Okay. First of all, black Americans are not discriminated in every facet of society. Black Americans are actually discriminated for in the Harvard race-conscious system. Okay? So that's already an example that we can point to that shows, hey, it's not a blanket racist, discriminatory country against Blacks, against Asian. In certain scenarios, yes, Asians potentially have faced discrimination. Uh, In the the Ivy Leagues, Asians definitely, definitely face discrimination. Uh, Harvard's own study, 43%. uh, Harvard would be 43% Asian. Its own study, Office of Institutional Research 2013, Asians would be 43% of Harvard if they were admitted solely on the basis of merit. Instead, because of a race conscious system, they're cut down to less than half of that to about 20% of the college. Okay. Finally, okay, I'm going to talk about the word merit because I the, think you're utilizing it incorrectly. Based on objective merit, you know, grades, test scores, extracurriculars, the things that har- anybody would agree we should merit, be Merit is process. Merit
6: is never objective. Merit is subjective mm-hmm. because of the needs of the institution and the background of the scholar. I may not want a 4.0 student that does zero extracurricular activities. Maybe I want a 3.5 student who's president of the student government. That is an objective standard set by the institution.
5: Continue. That, okay. Finally, to the point about teaching race in schools, you know, this ultimately you don't want a system that that causes people to to blame the structures of society okay. for whatever inequities are, are present in their society or their own life. Because All right. What that does is it just creates an atmosphere where a person is unlikely to want to achieve to get to a higher position in life. All right.
6: Well, that definitely has not been the result of the data because we are not blaming. We are setting remedy. You cannot change what you fail to acknowledge. The systems, including the Chinese Exclusionary Act, they were changed because individuals blamed the government For that act and said it must be fixed. So you can't fix, brother, what you failed to acknowledge. Kenny, I'm flat out of time. I do appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, man. Okay.
5: Thank you.